So this week we're revisiting two of my favorite things, zero trust and conversations with Artie. Earlier this year, we talked to Chase Cunningham about zero trust. We've talked to Artie about AI bias, and today we're bringing the zero trust conversation and Artie together. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So in revisiting the two different topics, do you think that the perspectives on zero trust have changed, David? Um, not a ton, but I do think that there is a little bit of a shift that um, Artie really uh, highlighted. She articulated this idea that one of the most important things to understand about zero trust is this idea of context. And that's maybe not new for everyone, but I think the uh, realization uh, in the conversation with Artie was how important that is. So you can have uh, you know, a zero trust policy, but if you don't have uh, context across your control set, uh, you're missing out. And um, that's maybe the big evolution from you know, never trust, always verify, to never trust, always verify, and understand context. This is the Security Intelligence Podcast, where we discuss cybersecurity industry analysis, tips, and success stories. I'm Pam Cobb. And I'm David Moulton. Here's my conversation with Artie Barker about zero trust and the importance of context. Earlier this year, we had a great conversation with Chase Cunningham from Forrester about the genesis of zero trust and how organizations can put that concept into practice. One of the ways he defined zero trust was never trust, always verify. Never trust, always verify. Artie, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it probably means a way of life, to be honest, but I'll park that part of the story. Uh, in the world of security, though, we are going through a phase where the actual elements we secure, the data, the application, the infrastructure, is getting broken up and fragmented and separated across multiple elements, which makes the need to coordinate and verify who is touching what element that much more important. So it's always been on people's minds in the world of technology and security that verification of who they give keys to their kingdom is important. But as we expand the digital transformation realm, as we expand digital business interaction with partners, et cetera, that verification becomes that much more important. And now we're verifying on very small portions of the foundation because it's not, hey, I'm, I've got this massive door that allows you to enter this castle and I'm going to check at the door of the castle. It's I've got 25,000 rooms and you've got to check every one of them. So totally agree with Chase. And I think it's become more important right now of ensuring the right person has access to the right data and apps at the right time uh, under the right circumstances. And to me, that's zero trust. So that idea of the right person at the right time with the right data and the right access is that how you've expanded the meaning of zero trust? I think uh, if you step out of the world of security, still still live in the world of business and technology, but outside of security, uh, trust is the foundation of a lot of what we do as, as human beings. We do business with people we trust. We make decisions based on quote unquote trusted data. Um, it's just a common term we use all the time, but a lot of that is perceived trust. 
in the world of security, that needs to be quantifiable. And so when we get down to the specifics of ensuring the right people can get to the right data, which inherently means that the wrong people can't, and the right people can get access to only the data that matters to them. And then we're looking at the circumstances and the timing of when they access that data. It starts making this construct of trust that we have a bit more quantifiable, that we can sign our names off on, that we know that even with the best intent, somebody is not making a mistake by just you know clicking on something wrong, et cetera. Uh, if they don't see the data they're not meant to see, they can't actually make the mistake of sharing it with somebody they shouldn't. Um, and so, yes, uh, for me, it goes from perceived trust to quantifiable trust in the world of security and the right person, the right data, the right time, the right context makes all the difference in the world. So I really like that idea of perceived versus quantifiable, uh, particularly as we, we move from you know human to you know, systems. Um, and as you're talking about that idea of zero trust and you can then go through the right person with the right access at the right time, um, that's that's really a, a good way of thinking about what zero trust means that goes beyond, in my mind, never trust, always verify. That's a good framework or you know rule of thumb. Uh, the next one is one that you can start to engineer into your practices. Now, one of the things I want to pivot to is this idea of remote work. And all of us are now experiencing a, a dose more of it than maybe we had in the past. And I'm curious, how does this... Uh, shift to remote work and you know the different tools and the ways that we're accessing different applications and data interacting with uh, one another how has that impacted this idea of zero trust three things that are happening people are moving to the cloud faster because if everyone's working remotely it's easier to do it in a digital fashion and the movement to cloud is specific it's because the business is moving to a digital form factor even faster. So now you've got more touch points and more integration points, and each of those points needs to get verified, right? You've got more point-to-point -point conversations between individuals that are now in their houses with the company they work for. But those same individuals with clients and partners and so you've got a lot more one-to-one -one interactions through a digital realm, each one of them requiring verification. So the zero trust philosophy and foundation becomes that much more important because security is, is as good as your weakest link. And if you've got hundreds of these little point-to-point -point interaction patterns between people, devices, clients, partners, um, machines, phones, pick, right? Pick, there's a whole host of them. Then consistently following a philosophy that we've been talking about around zero trust um, gives people the guidance on how to stay safe as they go through this transformation of remote work. Um, we were already dealing with the lack of a perimeter with the journey to cloud. Remote work makes that perimeter or if there was a sense of a perimeter, uh, completely disappear. Uh, I don't think there was. there's a more important time for us to adopt and make a habit out of the zero trust philosophy that a lot of us have been talking about. 
So with more importance placed on zero trust, and you've articulated all the reasons why and how that fragmentation has just made it more of an imperative, can you share with us what successful zero trust looks like? So let's go back to what Chase started talking about, trust but verify, right? Um, Verification requires some set of rules or some set of contexts of saying, what are you verifying? I'm verifying if this person is allowed to access this data. Great, but where? how do you know it's the same person? Have you double-checked that? It is about time. Did they ask for it in the middle of a workday because you know that there's a meeting happening? Or did they try to access large swaths of data in the middle of the night when you don't expect them to work? So the context of that interaction is unbelievably important. So taking trust but verify and taking it to uh, operationalizing it requires the need to be able to contextualize um, the frame of reference, right, for for every one of those rules. Um, Today, in the world of security, we build those rules in various aspects. We build them around threat management, and we're looking at network traffic and logging and the incidents and threat intelligence. We do it slightly differently in the world of data. We we build rules on what somebody is allowed to access based on um, the type of data there is and, and kind of have a set of rules on behavior of interaction with data, and that is people or machines accessing that data. And then there's a whole other world when you're thinking of identity management, of access, accessing something as simple as your bank account um, has, you know, a set of rules that are defined which allows you to access or not access uh, and how people, you know, catch and and catch things like phishing and, and more, right? Each of these rules tend to be distinct and different. Um, being able to weave a thread across them gives you the verification you nearly need to apply a true zero trust philosophy or foundation. So... To me, the importance here is making sure we are looking at that whole picture every time when we do make a decision to verify or not verify a particular interaction. Uh, That starts becoming um, a tangible way to put the philosophy into our products, into our technologies, and into our behavior patterns that we can monitor and, well, operationalize. So when we think about what a successful zero trust implementation looks like, it sounds like it's all about context, right? Having that that data um, that you can use to make your decision and then what sits outside of that data. Do you think that organizations have a really solid understanding of how context improves their zero trust implementation today? I'm going to use a story that my grandmother used to tell me a long time ago because I've I've thought about it more than once as we've built out um, a point of view on zero trust. Um, she was trying to get me to step back and see a bigger picture. And she used to talk about a story where uh, six blind men um, run into an elephant and one of them touches the trunk and think it's a snake and one touches the foot and thinks it's a tree trunk and another touches the side and thinks it's a wall. And um, 
Each of them, in their own right, felt that they had enough context to say that it was a tree trunk or uh, a snake or a wall. Um, the right thing to do would have been to say, hey, I'm at the front and I feel this thing that looks like a snake. And I'm on the side and I feel this thing that looks like a wall. And just sharing that information might have given them the way to say, oh, actually, we're touching an elephant. Um, not to take a childhood story and make it sound like the solution to our security issues, but that's nearly what happens today in the world of security. Uh, we have siloed groups that have siloed um, outcomes that they're trying to achieve and conversations they're trying to have. And so in their own right, they will think that they know the context. But what they're missing is to get the full picture they need to work with each other uh, and get a broader story. So the fidelity of the response uh, to a problem situation is, is coordinated across more than one of them. It allows them to find the problems faster and it allows them to solve them faster. So going back to your question of do, you, do I think people know um, the answers, Unfortunately, probably not as much as they should. The good news is most of them are starting to realize there is more that they need to and could do here. I'm wondering, how do you enable the business to innovate better in that space? That's the magic. So the good part of Zero Trust is it not only provides a security foundation, its tenants uh, force us to provide a simpler answer around security that is connected, that is continuous, that is easier to follow, and that becomes a habit. So what does innovation require? And when we say innovation, it should be technology innovation, it should be business innovation, it should be outcomes for the end clients in, in different parts of the world, right? It could be the world of finance and retail distribution, all of them have cool new innovative ideas and security needs to support them. If we can create a framework that is connected because of the context and is preventing everyone involved from taking missteps, then the innovation actually flourishes because they don't see the security elements as gates, they see them as guardrails that they can use to ensure the innovation follows a path. And guardrails tend to speed up process because people aren't floundering, whereas gates require people to jump over it to get to where they want to go. Um, so to me, the same set of values and um, ideas help innovation from a business perspective. A lot of this correlation that we're talking about happens behind the scenes. As a result, the right context-driven action can take place. For example, a team is working really well. You've got the right mix across a company, across a few other companies. We tend to have a fear of insider threat, which means, hey, this is a mission-critical project. We've got a bunch of people working together. Is somebody going to betray our trust and take this information somewhere else? 
Or is someone spoofing being part of our team, watching and wants to take this information somewhere else? If you're constantly watching for it, that's, that hampers innovation. On the flip side, if you can say that, hey, my security platform is watching interactions on a variety of domains, um, things that happen on the network, at the endpoints that a threat management platform would co constantly look at, and then it's correlating it to all the data associated with the project, and it's looking at whether there are any rule violations on the data access, and then it's looking at interaction patterns and access patterns of all of these members um, because that happens on a daily basis and through an identity platform. And guess what? All that information is correlated and better still, we've got a response platform that can coordinate a response in near real time across all those three elements. That gives that team a, a sense of peace of mind to be able to continue innovating on a high profile project without constantly worrying if one of them in that team might create a breach they don't want to happen, right? And so the interconnected nature of security that a zero trust philosophy can provide um, to me helps innovation more than it ever has before. I really like that, Artie. I think that idea of if you want innovation, erect your your guardrails, not your gates, uh, really resonates. You know, you think about a gate, you got to stop, wait for it to go up. But the guardrail maybe lets you go a little faster because you know that if you do make a mistake, you're going to get bumped back out onto the road as opposed to, you know, a full wreck. Um, Artie, do you have any examples of zero trust in action from your experience? I'll tell you some of the examples that we've um come across from uh, a few different clients in more than one um, kind of simple ways, right? Um, the data and identity part that I was talking about is starting to become real for a lot of our clients. Um, we're starting to see information where the data team is sharing details of what data is important with the identity team, because the data team does it today. It has rules, it has governance patterns, it has setups. Sharing it with the identity team starts giving the identity management setup the ability to say, hey, you're authorizing this person to this system. This system happens to have details of all your clients, all your um, suppliers, you know, loyalty information, whatever it is. That simple context of being able to say what is in the system you are giving people access to is allowing clients that we know to make the right decision about should they or should they not give access. It becomes even more important when you're talking about privileged access management and the types of information that they should have. So we're seeing a lot more correlation between clients on the data and, and um, uh, identity side. Another context-driven example for me that's become really clear in this working from home scenario is um, we've got, you know, we've got a fraud solution as part of the portfolio. Uh, that fraud solution is capable of identifying if a person that is logging in into 
say, a single sign-on page of the company from a home computer, which is not managed, has malware. So just by the interaction, the, the technology, the fraud technology, which is in, on that web page can say, hey, this person that's logging in seems to have some malware. Now, the right thing to do is not tell the person who's logging in, hey, you've got malware. It is being able to connect that to the SOC. And so the fraud technology, in this case, automatically passes context to the SOC saying, this identity interaction seems to come from a machine that has malware. Now, our platform the, that the SOC uses has threat intelligence combined with SIM and SOAR capabilities. And so the minute it gets this information from the fraud solution, uh, and we're seeing banks use this heavily as they're starting to see more working from home elements, um, that SOC can now do something. That's The SOC analyst can do something about this specific machine and respond across all domains of activity that's coming from this home computer. Uh, not because there's a malicious intent by the user, but because there seems to be malware on the machine. Now, it can also similarly find malicious intent. Um, these correlations between technologies, uh, automatic integration, passing of context, uh, we're starting to see being adopted and deployed a lot more now, especially with um, the, the mass working from home environments and um, remote interaction environments that are in place. Um, than ever before. So we're seeing clients across industries, actually. Obviously, the financial world is very uh, careful about this, but it's starting to be more prevalent in manufacturing, in retail, where more and more of face-to-face -face interactions from the prior prior time frame is now remote. And, you know, I can keep going. This is, this is something that excites me. I uh, I love being able to find solutions where correlation by software automatically talking to each other uh, provides the client an easy button to solve a problem that otherwise would be very hard to solve. Sorry, let's talk about the people that are critical to bringing zero trust to the forefront of an organization's security strategy. So the interesting part here is we talked about a few elements. We talked about innovation, business growth, the current um, circumstances of uh, where people are working, um, the changes businesses have to make. If you think about all of these questions, they all require the business teams to be involved with the security teams to get the right answers. And that's probably been the hard part of ensuring that the conversation is not just the security team figuring this out on their own, but the, the technology teams, the IT teams, the line of business teams coming together um, and having a discussion in language uh, that everybody understands without there being lost in translation. So uh, if you ask me who's required, you actually need the security team who understands the nuances of business a little bit. And you need a business team that realizes that their brand presence and identity as a company is heavily dependent in the digital world of being secure and trusted. And bringing those two groups together starts giving you the right answer 
on uh, which team uh, or the right team or the right set of people that can put the zero trust uh, philosophy, architecture, uh, and habits into play such that the entire corporation benefits from it. So you've really hit on this idea of bringing things together for success, right? Whether it's data and context or if it's going to be business teams and security teams. And I like the idea that zero trust is not just this, you know, limited to security, but it's a business philosophy. And then it extends, you know, up and down into the business and into the security teams such that you can innovate so that you can go faster. Uh, it's just, it's really exciting. I can see why you get jazzed up about this. Um, so given the need for security to drive more innovation in the business in order to keep up with consumer demand, how do you see the CISO's role evolving with regard to zero trust? So one of my favorite CISOs, and I won't definitely give you a name because, you know, they're all my favorites, sort of. <laughs> yeah. But but one of them uh, said something to me um, a, f- uh, a few weeks ago, actually. He said that um, he learned it from his mentor. He said, the best, there's great CISOs and there's good CISOs. The good CISOs truly understand the problems and get the solutions. The great CISOs um, understand the business. And um, so the role of the CISO, uh, to me, is one of the most critical roles in the future of nearly every market segment, because every company is doing more work digitally. And so it's gone from being a supporting profile to the technology needs of the company to being um, a primary voice at the table as the business is getting run. And so for that CISO to be able to sit at that table and and tie the technology needs, uh, understand risk, understand security requirements while creating a frictionless environment for business and innovation to exist um, is going to be paramount. And for the which which is a leap from where they've been, right? And a lot of CISOs are on this journey, but but that role will continue to solidify as a combination of business and technology um, acumen and decision-making going forward. So just like that security team needs the business partner to figure out contacts and those sorts of things, there's no way that that, C- that CISO is going to be able to go on that journey alone And when you think about which C-suite leaders are going to be needed to help that CISO succeed and the business succeed together, who would you tap first? Ooh, good question. Um, 